Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. On our agenda today, we talk about the Singaporean who recently became one of the biggest shareholders of SingPost after he sold his flat and put it all in one stock, he said. And on to China's Pinduoduo, which is taking its first international step into the US market. Is it good timing to do that now? And what do investors need to know about single stock ETFs? So a lot to chat about. Let's invite Arun Pai, investments team member from Monks Hill Ventures on air with us. He's got a knack for breaking things down and making it all understandable. Arun, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about that 47-year-old Singaporean, Stephen Lim, who claims he sold his flat and put his entire proceeds sometime back earlier this year into one stock, SingPost. We've talked to analysts all the time and they generally say it's not a great idea to uh, bank it all on one stock, but he clearly has conviction for SingPost. I I wonder if we could start maybe first with some ideas on on how SingPost has been doing since the pandemic. Can you give us your thoughts there? Yeah, so I mean, uh, if you go back uh, right when the pandemic happened, like March 2020, give or take, uh, pretty much every uh, share price that was out there cratered, right? If I remember correctly, I think SingPost was trading at close to about a dollar, went down to about 60 cents, kind of where it's hovering right now. So, uh, which is pretty much par for the course, I guess. Everyone was really afraid as to how long this lockdown would last and what the effect would be on the business. But then what was interesting was companies like SingPost in the logistics space and e-commerce delivery space had a huge tailwind, right? Because a lot of us went online and had to do all our shopping over there. So anyone associated or affiliated within that space saw actually a very dramatic increase in their revenues and profitability for the next couple of months. And so on the back of that, SingPost share price rallied back up another like 30, 40%, close to like 75, 80 cents, give or take. What's happened since then, though, is the share price has kind of lagged, mm. right? Where been relatively flatlining and share price, I mean, in the long run is about value. And mm-hmm. if you actually go into their financials and you look at their, just the top line, right? Like uh, you've seen revenue over the course of the last like two, three years on average has been steady at about 1.4, 1.5, 1.6 billion dollars per year. So we've seen that short winded, like those three, four months right after the epic fall during COVID, that's not translated through to the rest. And there are some various reasons for it. But yeah, in terms of a historical context of how the share price in the business has been doing, yeah, that would be a quick summary, I guess. That's great. Now, he bought in at $0.65 cents for his $450,000 shares, worth of shares. The uh, share price is currently $0.60. Cents, so he's lost uh, over $13,500 by this stage. Uh, the big question is, what is his exit point as well? Um, but what do you think? SingPost has a dividend payout of some 1.3 Singapore cents per unit. In terms of looking at it as a dividend play, does it make sense? Yeah, I mean, and this kind of boils down to, you know, putting your entire worth or most of your worth into one stock for dividends. It might just be better off trying to buy a a bond, right? Where Mm. you know at least your principal is going to be protected upon maturity of the bond, as long as you, you know, you buy the right credit and all of that stuff. So just from the perspective of pure dividends, I think there's a lot of other instruments out there. And yes, like like the other people that have been on your show, presumably, 
would highly recommend um, all of your listeners to not follow uh, the same path of putting all your eggs in one basket in this specific case. Mm -hmm. But no, so so from a dividend play, I I think there are better options out there. From a pure valuation play, you know, at present, at like 60 cents uh, for a share, you're looking at this at about a $1.3 billion market cap company. And it's not exactly like low single digit uh, price to earnings ratios or trading below book value. So it's not exactly like a quote-unquote, true value play from the traditional mean of things. And then looking at the competitive landscape, right? I I mean, if you just go through a a customer journey of what you do when you sit and buy a package, you'll go to one of these online e-commerce sites Mm -hmm. or uh, like these platforms, or thanks to Shopify and a couple of other SaaS technology companies out there, individual merchants can go online themselves and they can partner up with uh, third-party logistics players like your Ninja Van and like a couple of other guys out there. The amount of technology that the Amazons, Alibabas, Lazada, Shopees, Ninjavans of the world are utilizing to ensure that this really high velocity business, right? You're talking about like packages that are can be worth anywhere from like $5 to a couple of hundred dollars and like thousands and tens of thousands of these moving through warehouses and getting delivered at your doorstep. It's a very high velocity, low margin business for which you need technology in the back end. And, and I don't mean just a glorified simple ERP system, but you need technology like to be solidly involved in every aspect of the business to try to eke out a profit. And when you've been competing with very large startups that you know have been funded uh, by venture capital money, that have a genesis of being technology at heart, technology at source, rather than a think post that basically had this fantastic monopolistic position back in the day where it was pretty much the sole logistic service provider in Singapore, those times are long gone. So unless something really dramatic happens, it is very difficult to move like a large ship, right? Where especially the size of ThinkPost, which I think it has close to like 7,000 or 10,000 employees, it's not easy to truly make it digitally native or digitally first. And I think that's the problem the company and hence the share price is going to suffer in the long term. So what did you think when you first heard this story? Uh, Man sells his flat, takes all the proceeds and puts it in one stock. I mean, I think it is a little bit of, um, you know, media headline gathering. Uh, Presumably the guy has a lot of cash outside of the property, you know, potentially, who knows, could be a rich business guy, (laughs) could have bought Bitcoin when it was $100, right? And (laughs) this forms like 0.1% of his net wealth. (laughs) Perspective, people. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. So uh, who knows? I I mean, it just could be a pure media gathering share, but uh, yeah, (laughs) no, no particularly deep insights uh, into that. Uh, thank you for giving us head, uh, you know, a great overview of the headwinds for the post and parcel business, really. Um, a deep dive there because people think everything comes to you these days, right? Days are measured by how many parcels you get. Um, and so that, that was great, great to have, really. Next up, let's talk about single stock ETFs. Apparently, a lot of people... Very interested in the EV plays, particularly CNBC has a great article out talking about why it's important to understand certain aspects, whether it's um, volatility or counterparty risk when it comes to these uh, single stock ETFs. What do you think we need to know? What would you like our listeners to know about single stock ETFs in the market? Well, 
stay far, far away from it, <laughs> to summarize. I, I mean, look, Michelle, I, I genuinely don't get it, right? Like, so, so I obviously understand the mechanics behind how these leveraged ETFs work. Think of it as we as the end buyer or seller, whatever you want to call it, of this ETF, you get invested into it. This is going to be created by some large financial institution. This large financial institution on the back, in the back will deal with an investment bank, will have various swaps in place. So say, for example, you want a leveraged exposure to Tesla, right? You have $100, but you want like $150 or $200 worth of exposure to the underlying Tesla share price. You take the $100 deposited to this ETF institution. These guys in turn sit and do like leveraged swaps with investment banks in the back end. Uh, your Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Credit Suisse, UBSs, et cetera, in the back, like their capital markets department, where you lock in the price of where the swap got into, you lock in the price and the time, uh, not the price, but you lock in the time where this daily swap is going to expire, which is typically close to the end of the day. Whatever the uh, return of that swap instrument is in absolute amount, it's passed back to the holder of the ETF. Now, the purpose of this single-named ETF is basically just to facilitate and tap on the greed of investors, right? So I, it's not like I'm going to bla always blame big, bad uh, banks, but it's also the aspect of, you know, why is there demand for such kind of a product? Like, if a person really wants to take that much of a desperate, like, leveraged exposure, be it long or short to a single-name stock, on a day-to-day -day basis, is that kind of punting, should that be frowned upon? Should that even be made illegal? Who knows, right? But basically, Wall Street is just there to facilitate it. And if they can take a nice little hefty margin of the bid-ask spread on the back of these swaps, they will absolutely do it. So from that aspect, you know, when you get into these more esoteric or exotic instruments, just know fully well that there are a lot of middlemen in the place where you have the ETF provider, you'll have the investment banks in the back end. Everyone is taking their little cut out of this, right? So the end result that you will actually be facing, especially if you hold on to these single name ETFs for an extended period of time, will be substantially lower than what the returns of the underlying stock are. So mm. to summarize, you know, if this is like a short term punt, for whatever reason you believe that Tesla is going to have terrible earnings for this quarter and you want to take on a leveraged short position, going through these single name levered inverse ETF could be one way of getting that exposure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for most of us, mm -hmm. I would say that that's really a game that you really don't want to be playing. Right. Knowing fully well that your competition are the likes of these extremely well-funded, extremely high-tech funds like your Citadel and the like, mm -hmm. who obviously will have not an information edge because that would be illegal, but from the perspective of executing orders far, far quicker than what you could potentially do by looking at the news and then trying to sell or buy, they're just much quicker and better at it, right? So it's a game I don't think most, if not all of us, should be playing. Wise words there. Arun, as Chinese state-owned enterprise look to delist from the U.S. capital markets, deepening an exodus arising from that deadlock between Beijing and Washington, Pinduo Duo, which is one of China's biggest e-commerce operators, is preparing to enter the North American market. This will be its first cross-border expansion. What are your thoughts on how this could be received in this particular climate when it comes to geopolitical tensions? 
yeah, I mean, uh, if you let me, uh, before getting into that specific uh, geopolitical issue or geographical expansion, would love to take a step back and maybe just go through a little bit about what the company is, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's this amazing business that it's in the social commerce play, right? Where imagine if you're this guy knowing fully well that Alibaba exists in your country, JD.com exists in your country, these very efficient, extremely high-tech, well-capitalized logistics and commerce businesses already are there. And you come up with this brilliant brainwave that all of these big boys are targeting like first-tier, maybe second-tier cities in your country. But you have another like, I don't know, 500, 700 million plus people living in third-tier and fourth-tier cities that do not have access to wow. uh, an Alibaba warehouse right next door. And hence you can't get these immediate like two-hour deliveries or same-day deliveries. So he's come up with this brilliant concept of like group buying. So if you're like, you know, in, in a third-tier or fourth-tier town, you want to buy a certain product X, you realize that you can form this social group with 10, 20, 50 other people and you as that micro champion of uh, getting this group together to some extent via the platform or in the case of China via WeChat, and that's an uh, important distinction which we'll go into uh, their US expansion plan, but from the aspect of a micro champion and forming that group and social shopping. This, good, right. exactly. Mm. At a cheaper group purchased price, so logistics becomes simpler because it's one large order given to the micro champion and can then disperse it to the rest of the group. Uh, it's group buying. You get volume, right? So it's the scale of numbers. And leveraging on those aspects, this guy managed to create like a multi-billion dollar business. And it was really funny if you read uh, like an IPO document, because when this initial business model came out, this was not one of those tech startups that basically copied an idea from the US or Europe, mm. implemented it in the region, and then was like, okay, you know, now I'm, I'm up for acquisition, or this is like the Amazon of uh, China or something like that. This is his own business model, right? And I think in his IPO pros- uh, perspective, he summarized it really succinctly. He was like, this, I, what I want is this company to be a Costco meets Disneyland. Wow. Right. So it's such an interesting thing. He wants to make shopping fun and you can achieve that through group buying. Yet have the cost savings of a Costco because that's what they're famous for. Right. When you go up into their large warehouses or shops in the U.S., you can't buy like one detergent. You have to buy 12 of them, like a, a, a carton of 12. To and that's sense. where you get cost savings and all of that stuff. So mm. it, it's a really interesting business model that has worked fantastically well in China, wow. primarily because uh, obviously third-tier, fourth-tier cities were untapped. And uh, they had this beautiful thing called WeChat that all, that ensured that there was very large, like pretty much, I mean, everyone is there on WeChat. Hence, the formation of micro-communities could be a lot easier. So, you know, now going to the U.S. question, uh, two aspects to it, right? One is obviously the geopolitical issue. The other is the underlying business model itself. Geopolitical issue, obviously no deep insights uh, that we need to go into <laughs> in, in, uh, <laughs> in a lot more detail. I, I guess it, the, the question is the months. timing. Like, why is it doing this now when, when there's so much focus on, on Chinese companies trying to delist? Oh, so the reason it's doing it is because Look at all the other really large or well, a couple of really large successful Chinese companies that have crushed the market in the U.S. 
I mean, you had Amazon in the US, but if you look at the fashion sector, it was actually not doing that well. And along came Shine and completely disrupted the market where from a, a concept stage to seeing that the dress or the shirt or the top or the skirt in the store or online to purchase can take like less than a week. So they took what these traditional, your Macy's, Nordstrom, etc. were doing. Along came Zara, disrupted that. Along came Shine and is disrupting even Zara. Like they're far quicker than Zara to take a proof of concept of a design into uh, mass production. And they truly revolutionized fast fashion, right? And everyone thought Zara had done that. So right. you have this example, Shine, mm-hmm. and then obviously TikTok, right? You have Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, Twitter, you name it in the US, all these multi hundred billion dollar businesses out of there. And TikTok came along and uh, now that's become the most, uh, I mean, take pretty much any metric you want and uh, TikTok has destroyed that market. So as a large Chinese tech company, uh, when now when you're forced to look for growth outside of your borders and you're the second largest economy in the world and you've seen your friendly competitor, well, not competitors, but friendly neighbors achieve so much success in the U.S., you'd want to try that too, right? So from that aspect, uh, they decided to uh, launch in the U.S. in a big way. All right. So it's the largest e- Chinese e-commerce company that we've never heard of, according to Reuters, entering <laughs> the U.S. market. Thank you for giving us uh, that. You know, that was riveting, actually. It's hard to compete with, with China when it comes to rock bottom prices, right? You, you mentioned Shein, you know, fast fashion. And now we see Pinduoduo with this whole model of social buying, share your purchases, and then you get cheaper prices. That's how it works. Uh- that, that's right. But, but again, like the headwinds to this, right? So we talked about the geopolitical stuff. We talked why it wants to go into it. The U.S., though, it is a different market from China, right? And uh, sure, TikTok was a success. Shine, Xi'an uh, obviously did a fantastic job tapping into U.S. consumerism, mm-hmm. uh, which hopefully that's what uh, Pinduoduo is trying to attempt to do. But the aspect of micro communities and group buying, mm. I, I think the key is going to be in how they can achieve that within third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier cities in the US and at that scale, right? Because there is no WeChat. Uh, oh. Are they going to be able to create some kind of like integrate with WhatsApp or something? Because a lot of people in the US are on that, or maybe even I, I don't think Apple will agree to it, but so uh, their chat uh, uh, messenger is out the window. But they'll have to figure out a way to truly, be in a very seamless manner, uh, to enable these micro-champions to be able to create these micro-communities. I think that's going to be the biggest question mark, uh, because that's that's the, the first step, right? Because if you don't have that uh, group buying and hence group discounts uh, and that whole Disneyland aspect, you can't pull off the Costco aspect on the back. Even if they have extremely efficient supply chains and stuff, tough to compete against Amazon one-on-one for individual deliveries, right? So I think that's going to be something that uh, we really have to see how they uh, manage to execute that plan in the US. So interesting. Also, I understand in China, they've been looking at linking farmers up with consumers, really moving into agriculture. So it'll be interesting to see what parts of their business they try to um, duplicate. Uh, Like the whole farm-to-table concept, right? Mm. But uh, again, like these business models, and we've seen a whole bunch of them in Monkshill Ventures, the unit economics are very difficult unless you get into this aspect of 
large volume group buying, simplifying your logistics exposure. I think that's the big challenging part. So conceptually, what they're looking to do, you know, huge checkbox. It makes a lot of intuitive sense now, obviously, given that they are, I think at last count, they were a $60 billion valuation uh, from its peak of 200 plus billion. But I mean, that's common to pretty much any high-flying tech company, right? But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. All right, we've asked you these questions and this last question, many different permutations, but listeners still want to know, inflation affects everyone's budget. How do we best stay on course and invest smart during such times? Yeah, I think uh, Charlie Munger has a great phrase to this, right? Like invert, always invert. And I think the best way to answer this is probably where to not invest your money. And from that perspective, uh, you know, like long-dated bonds is something that uh, personally, and you know, we've discussed this many times over the past, I think over a year, give or take, where uh, at least personally, I was like ringing the alarm bells of inflation and was quite surprised yes. that it hadn't caught up to us, caught up to us uh, just yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, I still feel long-term bonds are probably not the place to invest money, uh, depending on which end of the risk spectrum you are. Uh, really short-term bonds, treasuries, et cetera, if you're just looking for absolute capital preservation. And uh, always, you know, like the steady, good cash flow, rock-solid balance sheets of businesses with extremely good uh, brand value, enabling these businesses to pass down costs to the consumers. It's always the place to put money, be it if you're going through high inflation, low inflation, pretty much any period. You know, it was funny. I was talking to a, I met up with a friend of mine who's uh, at a macro hedge fund mm. here in Singapore. And he was telling me of this interesting t- statistic where, you know, most active money managers in the equity space, they are not able to beat the S&P 500 index, right? So as a retail person, we are, we can get access to the S&P 500 ETF at basically at zero cost, right? Like mm-hmm. the vanguards of the world have provided this at zero cost. Mm-hmm. What this interesting point that he was mentioning is that there's another index called the S&P 500 Low Volatility Index, which basically means there are certain mathematical criteria to, within those 500 companies, to lop off the ones that once it goes beyond a certain volatility threshold, like basically right. the hot sector for that period, it'll lop them off. Right. And then you'll eventually, then you'll, you know, intuitively potentially think, oh, okay, if you're getting rid of the quote-unquote best high-flying sectors, I'll be far worse off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you actually go into details, this index actually outperforms even the S&P 500. Wow. And then you start thinking, how on earth did Warren Buffett become, you know, at one point the richest, second, whatever, call it the top 10 richest guys in the world uh-huh. consistently for the past 20, 30 plus years is basically just that. That's right? his strategy. You, that's the strategy. You just right. need, you, you need to have the benefit of uh, being able to invest for 50, 60, 70 years. You need to have the benefit of long life. You need to have the benefit of compounding. And sure, you might not be, you know, the top 10 richest people because you need a lot of element of luck in setting up a business and insurance float and all of the other good stuff that he's obviously managed to pull off. But from a retail person who is sitting somewhere at home in Singapore, click two buttons on your discount brokerage and just sit and uh, just watch uh, paint dry or play with kids, grandkids, family, whatever it might take. And you hope that you live till you're 90 years old, right? And that's about it. (laughs) What a gem. Thank you, Arun. That's brilliant. 
Really? That was good. That was great. Arun Pai there. Thank you for helping us think smart about investing, Arun. Thanks, as always, for having me. Oh, we really appreciate it. That's Arun Pai from the investments team of Monks Hill Ventures, my guest today in Money and Me, the news straight ahead. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.